We're talking about David. Those of you who were in the, the first and second Samuel class, this, this will kind of be a review. And I think I'm going to move this back here. We had some technical problems, so I don't have the, uh, the iPad from which I can look and see what's going on. So I'll just move this off to the side. Slides nicely on the new carpet. What we see in uh, so many places are parallels between David and Jesus. It's like you look at David's life and you get a foretaste of what's coming with the Christ, not just while he was on the earth, but, but even beyond that. And so I thought we'd take a look at some of those things tonight. And what this shows us is that God really has had a mind, a plan in mind from the outset of creation to save us. And so when we see it reflected in David's life, we see the plan that God has set and that he is the eternal God. And he's, he's got a place prepared for us in eternity. Everything that he said about Christ has come through. Everything that he said through David has come true. And we'll, we'll just take a look at some of it tonight. Next. That's what we're doing. Going next. All right. David was of Bethlehem. It starts in Ruth. Uh, Boaz married Ruth and their downline was uh, Salmon and by the way uh, where'd Salmon come from? It, it goes back to Rahab. Rahab was in, in the line and all this goes back starting at, at Bethlehem where Boaz was from. And of course we see then in 1 Samuel 16 that that's where Jesse uh, was living when Samuel was sent to him to anoint David, which we'll talk about briefly. And then, of course, next slide. And we see that David, or uh, Jesus, was prophesied by Micah. Micah well, prophesied 800 years before Jesus came in the flesh. And he said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem of Judah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the, the major tribes. That little town is the one that God chose to bring his son into the world through it and started with David. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says that's, that's where Jesus was born. So, next, anointed of God. David was anointed of God. Samuel went into the house and he looked at Jesse's sons and he saw Eliab, the, the tallest, the, young, the oldest, and said, this has surely got to be the one. And God said, no, I'm, I'm not looking at his outer appearance. I'm looking at his heart. Saul was presently the king when David was anointed. And what do we know about Saul? But that he was the tallest one around, head and shoulders above everybody else. But God was not looking for a tall man this time. He was looking for someone who was after his own heart, and that's who David was. And, and then we see Jesus and the next called the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I know some people think that. I don't know that anybody here thinks that. But Christ is a title. The equivalent is the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ and Messiah mean exactly the same thing. Christ is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word. And they both mean anointed of God. By the way, Jesus' name, which in Hebrew would have been Joshua, Jesus is Joshua, means salvation. So we're, if, when you say Jesus Christ, you're talking about salvation, the anointed of God. 
It's, it's a neat way to say things. We don't have cool names like that. We, all of our names have meanings, but you've got to look them up somewhere. Nobody knows the meanings of our names. So Jesus had a name that meant something in so many more ways than one. So, by the way, Bethlehem. Uh, what does the name Bethlehem mean? Anybody know? Anybody remember? House of Bread. Isn't that a cool name for the place where Jesus would be born, who himself was the bread of life? All right, moving right along. Wilderness Prep, chapter 17, 34 to 37. Now you have to go back, maybe, if you don't have it memorized, if you've got the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel memorized, then you know what that's talking about. This is when David was suggesting that he be allowed to go up against Goliath, and they were looking for some kind of evidence that he was capable of doing that and he says i was tending my father's sheep and a lion came out and i killed the lion and a bear came out and i killed the lion and i say wilderness because i doubt that david was right around the suburbs when that happened he was probably out in the wilderness with those sheep and killed a lion and a bear which is where a lion and a bear would have been so he's out in the wilderness and of course next slide not next slide but next uh these things on PowerPoint are called points. Yes, there's another word for them. Yeah, I know bullets too, but when you're, when you're clicking on your PowerPoint to make these things, uh, animations, that's what they are. It's an animation. You didn't know we were going to talk about anime tonight. But there's the next one. 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness. And what happened at the end of the 40 days? He was tempted by the devil. So we see a parallel in that. There are a lot of parallels. We're just going to look at a few of them tonight between David's life and Jesus' life. But David has this time in the wilderness when he is tested and he knows by that testing that he's ready to go beyond. And we see, I think that testing might have been as much for us as anybody, that Jesus was tested in all ways like unto we are. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all those things were there in the wilderness temptings of Jesus, just like they were there in the garden for Eve, and they are in our lives every single day. Next, David was envied by the unjust. Chapter 18, verse uh, 6 through 8, we're talking about Saul. What were the young ladies singing about Saul? Saul has killed his thousands, and David his Ten thousands, and Saul became envious. Now, if he'd had a godly heart, he would have said, Wow, what a blessing it is to have a soldier on my team, on my army, in my army, like David, who can kill ten thousand. But instead, he was jealous of the fact that these girls were singing about David killing his ten thousands and only ascribing thousands to Saul. So there was that. And then Pilate, of all people, You there, Charlie? Uh, there it goes. Charlie's helping me out because I, I can't do it myself. So he's, he's pressing the buttons back there. Matthew 27, verse 18. Matthew here records that Pilate knew that Jesus had been offered up because of the envy of the Jewish leaders. That was the reason. It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write about Pilate, this Roman leader that he could see through what was going on and he knew that it was all about envy 
And so David is envied and Jesus is envied. We see that evident in both of their lives and, and that envy lasts throughout much of their, their ministry. As David was pursued by Saul, envied by Saul, Jesus was constantly envied and pursued by those who were his enemies. Next one. David was unjustly persecuted. Right after you read about Saul envying him, he makes his first attempt on David's life. He has a javelin in his hand, and David is playing the harp to try to soothe his anger. And Saul throws the javelin and nearly pins him to the wall, but David escapes. Saul will make other attempts on David's life that are both direct and indirect. He'll try to kill him himself, but he will send others to try to kill him. He'll do everything within his power to kill David, and that's exactly what we see happening with Jesus. The next one is the fact that there were those in Jewish leadership who sought to kill Jesus. I just put one text up there from John seven twenty five, because this is such a well-known thing, that Jesus was persecuted. It's almost any page of the Gospels you open up, you'll find Jesus being uh, confronted and contradicted and demeaned and ridiculed and mocked. And it's such an irony that the Son of God would come, do nothing but good in this world, and yet find himself an enemy of those who should have been the first to welcome him. And it's uh, not changed much 2,000 years later. It was that way with David, and it was that way with Jesus. Next, we see Jesus or uh, David rather being betrayed. He was betrayed by his son. A couple of other people along the way, but primarily we think about Absalom betraying David and wresting from him the kingdom for a while. And those three chapters that are noted cover that time when Absalom was uh, sitting on the throne rather than his father. And there's more behind this than just what you would see here. This is after David has sinned with Bathsheba. And some of the hardships that he suffered he brought on himself, which would never be true of Jesus. And yet those hardships brought on situations that we see now as, as somewhat parallel with the life of Christ. He was betrayed and of course Jesus was betrayed. Next we think about of course Judas who would betray Christ and betray him with a kiss and at a most crucial time in the garden. That's the truth that we know about David and that's the truth we know about Jesus that betrayal was a great part of what happened with them. Next we have that justice and righteousness were done in the days of David. I want to let me get my glasses. I didn't realize I didn't have my glasses. Well, that's pretty good. Make it this far into a lesson. Not realize I don't have my glasses. Let me get my glasses. I want us to read that text together. It's from Second Samuel. And it's, it's almost like it was planned that this would be said. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 8 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Isn't that what a king's supposed to do? Justice and righteousness. Who's going to be the final judge? In, in a sense, it, it won't be Jesus because he said John 12, in John 12, 48, uh, I'm not going to judge you, but the words that I've spoken, that's what's going to be 
your judge in the last day. And yet we find that if the words of Christ are judging us, then it's, it's going to be Jesus. But he makes it clear. It's not simply my personal opinion about you, but I'm giving you, I'm telling you the standard by which you're going to be judged. And so Jesus is going to be the judge. His words will be the judge. And David, of course, is said to have administered justice and righteousness for all his people. And what more could we want? How great would America return to being if we began to administer justice and righteousness? That's what we want. That's the only thing that will bring about peace and security in a nation is for their leaders to administer justice and righteousness. And that's exactly what David did. And then we read this about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 9, verse uh, 6 and 7. By the way, if you go ahead to the next slide, I think that has that text on there from Isaiah. Here we are. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That sounds familiar, right? You've read this before? You've, You've seen that? You have that in mind? We don't often read what comes after that, but this is what we are familiar with at least. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's fascinating to me that we're talking about so many things here. This is Isaiah, and he is saying 700 years before Jesus. Have I lost you? Oh, there we go. Oh, you did? You're going on this one now? All right, that's good. I'll just stay right here. Yeah, the little light's not on anymore. Ah. <laughs> Ain't technology great? <laughs> so he talks about the throne of David. And we're going to get to that in just a minute about the throne of David. David wanted to build a house for God. God said, hey, I'm going to build you a house. And that's where the throne of David comes in. But from that throne, he's going to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Jesus even taught us. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You, you look for that. You seek that. In the way you live, the way you talk, the way you behave, the way you treat others. Seek the kingdom of God and seek his righteousness in all that you do, say, and think. Because Jesus is the one who establishes that righteousness. And we got a hint of it with David. Next. Go ahead, next. David wants to build God's ark, a house. Second Samuel Chapter 7, David is in his own house. He's got a brand new house. It's a house made of cedar. Hiram, king of Tyre, came down and said, I want to, want to bring some, some material, some cedar, and I want to bring my craftsmen. I want to build you a house. This is Hiram honoring David as the new king of Israel. And he builds David a wonderful house of cedar. Can you imagine what that place smelled like? Wow, that would have been great. So David is in his house, Second Samuel chapter 7. And he's saying, I want to build a house for God. I'm I'm here in this house. The ark of God is where? It's out there in a tent. Why is it like this? I need to rectify this. I need to build God a house. So it says, 
Verse 3 of chapter 7, Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord's with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build up me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? David's not reprimanding, or God is not reprimanding David. He's simply making the point, you know, I I haven't asked for that, but you want to build me one, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to build one, but not you. Your son's going to build it, but here's what I'm going to do. And you get down to verse 11. Even from the day I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The Lord will make a house. You want to build me a house? Hey, I'm going to build you a house. What kind of a house is he talking about? He's not talking about the house that David's already living. He's got a, a physical house to live in. Nice one made out of cedar. God's going to establish his throne, build up his family. The throne that's going to be waiting for Christ is the throne of David. and Christ will sit on the throne of David. And this house that God will build for David is all about his family and his line. And Mary and Joseph were of the lineage of David, and, and that's how Jesus came into this world. So that's God's promise. Next. Chapter 24. God's angry with the people. And this is an interesting bit of history because through God's anger with the people, he incites David. He doesn't compel him to sin, but he, and the chronicle, writer of Chronicles will say that this is Satan, but it's Satan doing it under the uh, authority of God. But David wants to number the people And this is all having to do with God being angry with the people. It doesn't say what the people were doing, but what did the people normally do? They normally went into idolatry. They mistreated one another, abused. They they cheated. They did all kinds of things eh, that people still do today. And so God was angry with them. And a part of the problem may have also been, because of the context, that they were trusting in their military power and their military might because that's how... The throne has now been established. They've gone out and they've conquered all their enemies and the kingdom's been established through military might. And it may be that the people stopped looking to God and faith in him and started looking to military might. Whatever it might have been, God was angry with the people. So David numbers the people and God says, all right, I'm going to send a plague. And that's exactly what he does. To punish the people, he sends a plague. You can read about all this here in the 24th chapter and in Chronicles. And... David wants to stop the plague. So it says in verse 15, The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and sent the, to the, said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Arana is one name for this fellow. The other name is Ornan. He's also called Ornan in, in Chronicles. And I usually think of him as Ornan rather than Arana. I don't know why, but I just do. But he had both those names. Both are legitimate names for him. 
So it says, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Jesus never sinned, of course. But Jesus' desire was to stand between us and our punishment. And that's what we are seeing David do right now. God was angry with the people of Israel. David is the one who had the people, the, the soldiers to be numbered. But God is punishing the people because that's, that's what he intended to do in the first place. And now the situation has come about where David is standing in between God and the people and saying, let the punishment that you would give them come upon me, which is exactly what Jesus, in fact, did. And so we see this parallel as well, but it's not over here. They were at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, or Arana, and David was told, go make a sacrifice there. And so David bought from Ornan the threshing implements and the oxen and the yokes, and and he was going to use all of that material and did, in fact, use all that material to offer up a sacrifice to God. But Ornan said to David, let me give it to you. You're the king. I honor you. Let me give you all of these things so that you might make this sacrifice. And what was it that David said to Arana, to Ornan? He said, verse 24, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And there's a parallel. God forgave our sin through Jesus Christ. He paid a price. I don't know if there's any way possible for us to be forgiven without a price being paid, but God said, I'm going to pay that price. I'm not going to exact it from anyone else. I'm not going to offer it up uh, without paying for it. I'm going to offer the price. That's exactly why I believe Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 that we see the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. In, In that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed because he paid for our sin. If he forgave our sin and did not pay for it, that would have not been righteous any more than if you swipe your card and take your stuff and you don't actually pay the bill, that would not be righteous. But God paid the debt, and he is declared righteous by having paid the debt. And David said, I will not offer to God that which I, uh, that which did not cost me anything. So many parallels. Uh, these are just a few that I wanted to bring up tonight. Let's see what else is on here. The place where David does... This, where he offers up that sacrifice, that will become the site for the future temple. So when you go to Jerusalem today, and you won't see the temple, you'll see a shrine to Muhammad, uh, the Dome of the Rock. That's on the place where David offered this sacrifice. That's the place where the temple used to sit. But of course, there is something much greater than the temple now. As God built a house for David, he built a house through Christ. You might remember that Isaiah said, The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established in the tops of the mountains. The law law of the Lord will flow forth from Jerusalem, go to all nations. That's us. We are all nations. And we are now part of the Lord's house. That house that God said he would build for David, he built through Christ. And you and I are part of it. It just, to see these things makes me wonder at God. 
just like Titus was talking about this morning, going out in nature and you see what God has created. That's just everyday stuff. A tree. How marvelous is a tree and how it grows and how you can cut a limb off one tree and graft it into another tree and it will grow. And how the, the rain falls because that water has evaporated from the earth somewhere else and it's gone up into a cloud. And Debbie was remarking the other day, driving along in beautiful clouds and said, look at all, that's just water hanging in the sky. And that's exactly what it is. All of the, the natural wonder that we see around us is God's handiwork. And all of the spiritual wonder that we see is also God's handiwork. And he's had a plan all this time and he's brought this plan to fruition and the whole point of the plan was you and me you are the focus of everything God has done Hebrews chapter 12 let's close with that we're looking at all these parallels and so many we didn't talk about my goodness David what did he do before he became king he was a shepherd well who's our shepherd now Jesus is the good shepherd. There's just so many things about David and Jesus that are parallel. And we can add those to the list. But the, this is what I wanted to come down to, this idea that there is a temple and the temple is now us. And Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us fixing our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the throne of god i think that's one of the most beautiful passages in all of the bible there was a joy set before Jesus, and I have to believe that that joy was us, his joy to save us. And in our great stories, is, isn't that what we look for, the, the exciting climax where the hero comes in and saves the day, and everybody's saved because of the hero. That's what we tell in our stories because I think internally we know that's, that has such great meaning. To us, such relieving meaning to know that there will be salvation from the hand of some great and mighty hero. And here it is. It's Jesus. He's the reality of all the stories we tell. He's the idea behind it. He's the truth that has always been there and will always be there. The one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and I think sometimes we forget about the shame that came with the cross. But he despised it. He didn't care about it because there was a joy set before him. And just the thought that that joy was you and me. In the mind of God, you and I were the joy that compelled him to endure the cross. Wow, that's, that's good stuff. You can, you can take that home, sleep on that. Well, anyway, that's the lesson for tonight. Uh, one of the points I want to make... As we close, I don't know about you, but, but I've got just a problem or two in my life. Perhaps you have a problem or two in yours. 
if you and I can look back through time and see everything that God did through David and how everything he did with so many things he did with David paralleled what he would do with his son, and all of that is part of his plan to bring about our eternal salvation, not just salvation for a little while, but eternal salvation. If he's done that, how much trouble do you think he's going to have working out the situations in your life, dealing with what you have to face? What we have to face is real. But when God stands by our side, there is no greater hope than that Jesus is standing with us all the time, working things out. So someday we'll be able to look back at our lives and see wonderful things like we see looking at the parallels between David and the Christ. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement and encouraging anybody to respond tonight who might need to put Christ on in baptism or if you need prayers. If there's any way you need to be encouraged or you need to be encouraged to be encouraged, we're, we're singing this song for you. This is your song tonight, so let's stand and sing. Come forward and let us know how we can help.